Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension soybean specialist Dr. Sean Castile and Extension corn specialist Dr. Dan Quinn. As harvest wraps up around the state, Sean and Dan discuss how we ended up with what USDA says will be a record year for both corn and soybean yields. I've talked to multiple farmers that say this is the best they've ever seen. You talk about here seeing the 300 bushel mark on the corn. Well, there were spots that are going over the 100 bushel mark in soybeans. I've got a few treatments that flat out were 101 bushel average. This podcast is made possible by the Indiana Corn Marketing Council and Indiana Soybean Alliance. Your Indiana corn and soybean checkoff investments yesterday are paying off today. New research, new uses, demand creation, bringing dollars back to the farm. Check it out at yourcheckoff.org. Now your host for Purdue Crop Chat, who's your ag today's Eric Pfeiffer. We're here, we're back at the Indiana Corn and Soybean Innovation Center in West Lafayette. Eric Pfeiffer here, Dan Corn Quinn over here. Hello, Dan. Hey, Eric. And Sean Soybean Castile is right over there. Hello, Sean. Howdy, Eric. A couple things. We, it's been a while since we've been together. We've got a lot to catch up on here. Harvest is, is darn near wrapped up for the most part. I think soybeans around the state, if those didn't get wrapped up, or, or they're very close this yep. week. Corn still maybe a little ways to go. Uh, so we've got that to talk about. Uh, but but first things first, if you're wondering why I'm dressed down a little bit today, I'm, I'm in my gym shorts. It's because I've got basketball practice here in a little while. <laughs> Uh, got to go coach my kids, uh, 12 and 13 year old uh, team here. I would invite you out, Sean, so that you know I could take you to the hole and show you that height isn't everything. But but this is about the kids, you know. I can't intrude on their practice. This this is their time to learn. Yeah, but some of the learning is hands-on, but it's also observation of what to do and what not to do. You don't go barking up the tree that you can't cut down. I also get the feeling, Sean, tell me, Dan, that you don't agree with this. Sean would be the guy showing up to the gym in the knee-high tube socks <laughs> and the headband, and he would probably even show up with, like, the wrist and ankle weights to warm up I, and, and the really short shorts from, from the 80s. Ooh, now, burn there. I wasn't there. That, that would be Sean sh- rolling up to the gym. I yep. just have this feeling. So you're saying Larry Bird. Which is still a compliment, <laughs> and from Indiana, so that's okay. I'll run with that. Okay, if that's where you took that, then that, that's all good. Uh, let's let's turn. Let's talk about harvest. It's uh, it, it has been ramping up here. Weather mm-hmm. has been fantastic throughout much of yeah. Indiana here to really get things done with harvest. And if you ask our chief meteorologist Ryan Martin. If you're not done already, there's going to be ample time to get that done mm-hmm. uh, here over the next week or so. I think his only real big chance of rain comes uh, not this coming Monday, but the one after that. And, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty short-lived thing. So uh, he's talking about pretty dry weather, even warm weather, uh, really running all the way up through Thanksgiving. So mm-hmm. plenty of opportunity to get harvest done, get field work done. And as we talk about yields across the state, Dan, I'll start with you because it seems like with Indiana corn yields in particular, the word I keep hearing is surprising. Wow. Where did this come from? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're still hearing around? Yeah, I think, you know, I've I've brought this up a few times is is one thing I've kind of noticed this fall is that from our perspective, it's been kind of quiet. And when it's kind of quiet with the farmers, 
usually, at least from our perspective, things are pretty good um, because they're usually, if they're calling us, right, there might be some concerns on whether it be, you know, disease issues or why wasn't it as good as what I'd hoped or, or this and that, but it's, it's been pretty quiet and, you know, harvest has been pretty timely, you know, outside of, you know, parts of Northern Indiana, parts of Eastern Indiana, specifically kind of Northern up near the Michigan line, they've been a little bit delayed. They've had some issues with some dry down and, and kind of some concerns on that. I think the weather now has really pushed those along. We've started to move into some of our Northern sites um, now this, this past week and getting them harvested. So I think, you know, this recent weather has really helped move those areas that were originally kind of behind. They've kind of moved them along recently. Um, but the, the yields are, I, I just kind of stare at the, the yield numbers, both from our trials, uh, from farmers I've talked to, you look at the USDA crop estimate and, you know, I thought it was a joke that the 200 number was, was showing up on, on that. Um, but one, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm done, you know, you putting me on the spot and saying <laughs> it's not going to be as good a good of a year. Cause I'm just, it's always wrong. And, and, <laughs> you know, I'm, the last couple, I keep, you know, I relay back to last year and because and, there's some similarities between this year and last year and, and some differences, but we were so dry early and it was all we could talk about, right? June was so dry. We're taking the top end off, but it seems like in the last couple of years, I would take, I'm going to take that dry June any day um, because when the moisture came, it came at the absolute critical periods for that crop. Um, crop health was phenomenal. We had outstanding grain fill conditions. Pollination was great around the state. We had some disease, but in a lot of areas it was pushed back um, because of the dry conditions. And just the yields that we've seen, I mean, even in our own trials, I you know, thought about recalibrating the, the weigh bucket on the combines a few times because I thought it was wrong um, because <laughs> some of these yield numbers, when that three number starts showing up, um, and, and farmers I've talked to too, I've talked to multiple farmers that say this is the best they've ever seen. Um, it's just unbelievable um, to the, you know, both the genetics we have. I think the planting progress was very timely this year. We got really well-established crops. I think we accumulated heat units early. We got the root establishment, and that crop just got off to a really good start, and, and we caught the rainfall uh, when we needed it in, in really critical periods. And I, it just kind of <laughs> resulted in just phenomenal yields all around the state, and, it, and it's, you know, been – kind of shocking and and you know almost kind of i would say it's kind of funny just how amazing <laughs> some of these these yields are that are coming off the fields yeah. yeah now when we look at soybeans sean i i don't know that the word surprising so much keeps coming mm -hmm. up because you've been talking all year about having you know, i think at the statewide level we're going to be right around 60 which yep. would be that that state record yep. uh but but i still think that folks are pretty pleasantly surprised oh, after i think just so. some mm -hmm. of some of the uh weather that we've had this year it just didn't seem like at the end it was all going to add up but yeah here it is one plus mm -hmm. one equals three somehow yeah no <laughs> doubt no doubt i think this bean crop is has been one for the record books it goes back to the season that we had i think we talked about we go back and we do a little snippets of all our podcasts soybeans were planted at the same time if not even before corn right mm -hmm. we started the season in the best possible light that we had good stand establishment early in the season so we could have good uh, good stand establishment, good root development uh, the month of June. Again, those suckers were rooting down deep. 
Um, soybeans, we don't want a huge robust plant. We want a nice compact plant, so early planting. The dry June has certainly put us in that place that we're not growing a lot above ground, we're growing below ground. And then that, the rains came back. So Dan and I, you know, we, we joke, the best way to cure a drought is for us to start interviewing and talking about <laughs> drought. Okay, I think we've had a few of those years together yeah. already, right? Yeah. And so we've done those interviews and rain came back and everything else. So again, we'll, we'll take our credit there, I guess. Well, it, was, it was Dancing Queen Dan doing the, the rain dance is what it was. Behind the scenes, yes. 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 Uh, behind the scenes, yes. You're glad that's behind the scenes. You did not see that, although there is YouTube evidence. Anyway, um, within that, but I, I think with the soybean crop, it was had the potential if rain comes back, right? It was all the if rain comes back, we, we have that potential. and. I think another part of that is we didn't have, I mean, you and I talked about a little bit of white mold surprised us here and there, but we didn't have a widespread disease issue per se. So I think that we've got a nice healthy crop that goes back to a compact plant. So you don't have a lot of biomass that's got this, you know, environment that's harboring all those pathogens and, the, and all that. So that was really a, a great spot for us. And then we had the August, so it was just gorgeous weather, nice temperatures, good sunlight. Mm -hmm. and. September, if you recall, I said, huh, I don't think we got quite enough. But yet, what did we get yesterday? 61 bushel state forecast right now. That is the absolute record for soybeans here in Indiana, and it ties the top in the country right now. And what's interesting, you, you go back, and I know that every farmer does this, the, the what-if game. You know, what <laughs> if we would have gotten a little bit more in September? What if, I mean, yeah. just with, with how this is looking, with obviously genetics play a big part of this but you know what what could have been it's it's interesting to think about Sean no I, I think we definitely lost I think we did lose out on some which is crazy to say in a year that is a state record and farms and fields are running 75 to 85 averages like I had plenty of fields plenty of farmers said I'm running mid 80s for my field average Right. There's there's spots in the field you talk about here, seeing the 300 bushel mark on the corn. Well, there were spots that are uh, going over the 100 bushel mark in soybeans. I've got a few treatments that flat out were 101 bushel average. It's pretty amazing to, to look at with the season that we've got and how well those beans and corn did. When we think about this, Dan, what do we what do we credit it to? Like obviously management. Um, I, I think that one thing that maybe has changed here in the past few years, and you guys can tell me if, if I'm wrong, but I feel like it used to be much more of a question for folks, should I apply the fungicide? Should I, should I put this on? Do I want to spend the money? Is it going to pay off? Mm -hmm. And I think now we've just kind of gotten to the point where, yeah, it's going to pay off. Do, do at least one. Like that, mm -hmm. sure. that's going to do it. Yeah. Am I, am I right? Am I wrong in, in that? I, I think there's some aspect uh, to it. Um, you know, and I, I do a lot of fungicide work, you know, and Darcy's done tons of fungicide work uh, on corn. And it, it's one of those inputs that, that performs very well for us year in and year out. Um, you know, we had disease show up this year, you know, every, you know, I've been doing a lot of fungicide work the last couple of years and we haven't ever had one of our studies anywhere in the state that didn't have foliar disease right and so that's a testament to you know we always take intensive disease ratings on these trials and we always see a reduction in disease from that fungicide application um, so I think you know that fungicide is, is doing what it's what it's supposed to be doing it's controlling some of that disease um, now is that always the case you know that's something 
it, it's it's hard pressed to just start throwing those chemicals all around and and you know we've seen the issues from that on the herbicide front um, but it's also difficult when you know year in and year out we do see these these improvements and I think there's some aspect um, that we've seen in our research too is that when you can control that that late foliar disease and and see the efficacy from that fungicide it maintains um, a lot of that photosynthetic leaf area of that plant and it, and it really allows the plant to kind of stay healthier longer and and it does reflect on some of that grain fill so i think you know controlling it's all about controlling those stresses right and the fungicide allows us to control some of those foliar diseases um, like gray leaf spot we had tar spot in in a fair amount of our trials um this year i don't think it was at you know the levels we've seen and in, in other trials we had i have a trial just right out here and at acre that had a fair amount of tar spot on it and we saw pretty good control um, from our fungicide applications, it, it really aid to about a 10 to 15 bushel um, response. But we did have the disease, right? And that's where that fungicide is, is controlling it. I think, you know, it really is, it's, I wouldn't pinpoint it to truly fungicide is the reason. I think it's, a, you know, a whole array of, of, you know, Sean hit on it too. And just the planting progress and the conditions that we planted in this year would, were just phenomenal um, we didn't there wasn't a lot of replants out there um, you know soil conditions were great that crop we had the temperature we had the heat units where that crop got out of the ground um, corn especially we wanted to get it out of the ground quickly we wanted to get it out of the ground uniformly we wanted to accumulate heat units quickly um, and so it can get established very well and I think that's what set it up uh, throughout the rest of the year so when we had those dry spells like in June um, that crop basically tolerated it. It had a deep rooting, you know, it, it was established well, it got through those conditions. We caught rainfall in, in July, right when that crop needed it. And that's kind of been the case the last couple of years where corn pollination is so critical for that crop. And we've had just phenomenal pollination the last couple of years in that crop. And that just means, you know, we had really good kernel set. And, you know, you think about ear size potential in the vegetative stages. Now we're getting really good kernel set on those those good size ears. And then now we're moving into grain fill where potentially both nitrogen management and, and some of that fungicide management can help with that late season plant health and help with that grain fill and the size and the weight of those kernels. So it's it's kind of a, you know, we always talk about managing corn throughout the entire season. And in this past year, it's just a lot of things from a weather standpoint, from genetics, from um, planting to management. Um, I think it's a whole array of, of things that really worked out in, in a lot of farmers' favor. And, and we're seeing that as the combines roll through on the yield monitors. Well, what you're talking about, Dan, I mean, it's the systems, right? I mean, it's yeah. the, the management, it's the environment. It's, mm -hmm. you, you build the machine, you've got all the levers and all the gears and everything else. And it was not missing, right? Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a tooth missing from a gear. It was all in lockstep. Mm -hmm. And when there was any issue, you go with the dry conditions in June. Okay, yep, we'll, we'll oil that machine a little mm -hmm. bit. It just took three or four weeks to get the oil, the water, mm -hmm. so to speak. But it just kept on humming like, like nothing was wrong and so i'm going to use what eric said what if we had caught in that rain in in <laughs> september dan what how much more yield could we have gotten Put him on the spot. I it's am. I am. I, I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm not saying the total. You know, what's the yield number? How many more bushels? So I, I gave you a little out there. It's always the number one question. It's either 
one, how much yield did we lose or how much yield could we have got? You know the question then. Uh, what's the problem? I know. <laughs> We've given you all the time to answer this. What's it's because no matter what I answer, it will be wrong. It's, it's what I, well, at this point. I'm sorry. Was that an it depends? Is that, that, thank hey, you. That that was, that was what I, I, I set him up, to. right? This is your career. It depends and you're good. You're good. Give a range and you're good to go. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's why you put no, me on the spot. I, I mean, it, clearly. It's any, anywhere it between one and 50, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, and, and I would say the same thing. I'm sorry. Obviously, I, I picked on you on that because, I mean, you could do the exact same thing. Turn it back to me. I, I do. I think we lost out on some top end yield, but, mm -hmm. I mean, we still yielded exceptionally well. So yep. if you want to put it on a percent, I think we could have easily got another 5 to 10% out of this crop. Yeah, and we, I think we talked about this in one of the last uh, podcasts we did when, when you – we brought up it got really warm and, and dry on us in, in parts of september and one thing we were noticing on in corn was the top dieback right we were starting to see premature senescence in that crop and and one of the the main keys you know if you've ever been in like both in our trials and other fields if you see corn that is just maintaining that green leaf area or there's folks that are harvesting and it still looks pretty dang green I mean, it, those are always, from my perspective, always some of the absolute best yields uh, we can see. It's just maintaining that assimilate supply to that to that ear and to that kernel fill. So I think, you know, in terms of some of that yield loss, where that was probably coming from at that sure. point in time was the premature senescence where that crop was starting to, to shut down from the top. Um, so I do think, yeah, we, we probably lost, you know, as hard as that's to say that we probably lost a little bit of yield. Yeah, we probably did at that point in time. But we are both, both crops are at record levels, right? We're yeah. giving each other tongue in cheek, you know, kind of comments here. But I mean, it is a phenomenal yeah. crop that the, the farmers have brought in and continue to bring in, you know, on the corn side, you said what, 200 bushel yeah. at the state level and we're 61 on, on beans. 200 so. is never been i mean obviously it's state record never been seen before but that's well above what the state record was and, and was past. it also this the the top producing state as well did you second second yeah, so the second behind dang, my home state right yeah those dang illinois okay, people right. they well i'm tied with illinois it's always like oh it's a crop disaster and then it ends up being 205 yeah. in that state but uh we're right in line with iowa right so i know iowa's had their their troubles and and stuff too but when that 200 number yeah. is coming in as an average of, as an average average i mean 200 yeah. state average means that there's plenty of people out there hitting that three number yeah um we have trials in southeast indiana which you know are not near the soils like are up around this area that i have pictures of the yield monitor sent to me that were 290 yeah um it's just unbelievable in in a lot of those areas that those yields were attained in, in contrast, if you, you know, we talk about Illinois, we talk about Iowa, we go up to your home state, a, uh, up there up north, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're struggling up there in Michigan, I know. Yeah, it's, Mich it's been wet, uh, and, and it's been cold, nothing's yep. drying down up there, yep. uh, pretty stark contrast to what's yeah, been happening. Yeah, it's here. even the last couple of days, I was talking to my, to my parents up there, and, and just, they got a boatload of rain and, and some of the you know i mentioned you know parts of indiana that had trouble with dry down and it was actually some farmers that i talked to that were about 
five to ten miles from the Michigan line. So it's really those those folks up there. Um, just the cool conditions. Uh, we haven't had the growing degree days up in those areas, so I think that's been a big factor. Is that it's been a lot cooler uh, this year, um, so that crop hasn't progressed as much. We've seen a lot of dry down. I've had farmers that even a couple weeks ago said their crop still hasn't black layered yet uh, mm -hmm. up there. Um, I do think the crops up there looked very healthy and looked very good and the ear set was very good. So I do expect the yields still to be pretty good in those areas, but they've been very behind in Michigan. Uh, I was talking to folks and my parents up in Michigan recently, they, they said there's corn standing everywhere up yeah. here. Um, so they had just really started getting started up there. So they've been, been behind and that's kind of trickled down into to parts of Northern Indiana as well. And I was going to ask, you know, from that standpoint, mm -hmm. while, you know, they might be letting that corn sit out there and waiting for it to dry. At this point, it seems like probably just better go get it, right? I mean, some of these folks in northern Indiana dealing with the same thing, mm -hmm. can it really dry down that much more with what we're seeing up there? Well, it's it's. I think this weather is, is helping, right? Yeah. Uh, we're getting the temperature. We're, if you can get some of that wind movement, we've got some you know sunlight. Um, I think that's going to help move some of that dry down. But that's the, also the tricky tricky aspect, too, is the, the closer we get even to Thanksgiving, we're not going to get the heat units. The heat units are going to drive that, that dry down. And when we're just not getting that, it's going to take a very long time uh, for that to dry down. So there's a point where, um, yeah, you just kind of have to get it out. But that's the tricky part in terms of dryer space and bin space and you know, I know that around here we've had some, there's been some issues with, you know, storage space and, and farmers waiting to, to harvest some things until they could take it to, to some of the elevators. Yeah, I was about to ask that, uh, that yeah. question because I, I know the lines have been long and then mm -hmm. the, the elevators shut down pretty quick. Yeah, they've been shutting down a great, lot Great yields, but now high moisture and you can't <laughs> yeah. dry it fast enough. So, yep. I mean, there's some yep. problems out there. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to, I've been hearing the same exact thing of, mm -hmm. uh, we've got to leave it out there because there's can't take it anywhere yeah yep. so, exactly uh, might as well just leave it let's take a time out here on the purdue crop chat and when we come back i want to talk about some of the trials that you guys have done some of the harvesting that you've done and what surprises if any have popped out at you guys here as we've gone through harvest we'll do that next here on the purdue crop chat biodiesel is bringing value back to the farm accelerating the demand for indiana soybeans increasing market value and reducing greenhouse gases the Indiana Soybean Alliance puts checkoff dollars to work, researching and promoting biodiesel in Indiana, growing production, creating nearly 3,200 jobs across Indiana, and increasing soybean ROI $36 per acre. The future of fuel is biodiesel. Learn more about biofuels at yourcheckoff.org. And we're back. Eric Pfeiffer here, Dan Corn Quinn over there, soybean Sean Castile over here to my right. And uh, I know, Sean, you're done with harvest. Mm -hmm. Dan still has a little ways to go, kind of indicative of uh, how things are going <laughs> around the state. So it means are pretty well done. Uh, I think, you know, Monday's USDA report showed, I think, 87%. Yep, I did. Uh, about 68% of corn, I mm -hmm. think. So still just a little ways to go here. But, uh, Sean, let's, let's talk with you first here about soybean harvest and what you've been seeing through some of your plots, some of your trials. Was there anything this year that really just jumped out at you like, hmm, didn't really expect that, but here we are? Sure. Yeah, so we've we've got some pretty amazing trials and results out there this year. Uh, there's things that I've been looking at for a number of years on the interactions of our management, our varieties, and, and some fertility, as well as foliar protection, and we're looking at biological. So all that's ongoing, and we brought in some new projects, and, you know, 
I'll go and say this, Dan, I, I still can't believe I'm going to say this, but we're having treatments that have a 20 plus bushel response. <laughs> like hear that number. We're talking soybean response of soybean, 20 bushel. Yeah. Double digit in its own right is huge in soybeans, but I'm saying 20 bushel responses. And it's just phenomenal to, to see that. And some of that is the interactions that we've got with planting date and uh, some sulfur supplies that we go back to, you know, the June that we had is so dry and the cooler conditions with earlier plantings. I mentioned it in, in a quick passing earlier, but I've got an untreated control April 18th planted that was 77 bushel beans, which a lot of people, that'd be great. And we get a 20 bushel response to a sulfur treatment. We're running 99s and 100. And just this interaction of earlier plantings, uh, coming to play in the same soils that do the same fertility treatments planted the first week of June, no differences in treatments. And so that's kind of, you set it up anticipating, you know, differences, but I didn't anticipate a 20 bushel plus difference. So, I mean, pretty phenomenal to, to see that. Dan, how about you? I know you're, you're still wrapping some things up, but mm-hmm. I know, uh, again, when, we, when we've talked about corn yield, just mm-hmm. it's been surprising. What has surprised you most about some of your plots and trials? Um, I think, you know, we did touch on a little bit is, you know, I was able to analyze some of our, our fungicide work um, that still had um, even, you know, single applications, right? Just that typical R1, R2, that disease did come in late, but still how some of that fungicide still could help um, push back some of that those diseases. Even, you know, we do a lot of our disease ratings at R5 in that crop um, and seeing, you know, 10, 15 bushels off of uh, those fungicide applications. So that's, you know, we've been doing a lot of that work um, around the state and, and I'm working pretty closely with Darcy too in, in some of these trials. But I think one of the big things that, that we've kind of really dove into this year is is short stature corn. Um, and I'll put Sean on the spot here because he actually has helped with this trial and been involved in and some And that's of these the reason trials. that you got 300 bushel, that you had the soybean guy planting the trial for you. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> and it's all because you know the short corn they're they're trying to just make it look more like a soybean you got it you got to bring in the soybean guy to get it done (laughs) Uh, but some of the this this short stature corn is this is kind of my first year working with it It, it's been really pretty eye-opening and and it's something that i think if the yield is there and the cost is there and you know there's some a lot of kinks we have to work out and recommendations that we have to work out and, and fine tune but i think it's something that you know in terms of really changing corn production around the entire midwest i think that's something that's that's coming down the line well that, yeah. was, that was my question like is this going to revolutionize <laughs> the you know the, the corn growing uh, industry like how how big or little could could this be for uh for corn growers across the country because i we can just look at the the obvious things one Mm -hmm. it's it's shorter you're going to be able to get uh you know over the top of it easier to do some of these fungicide applications but uh i mean it just how revolutionary could this be i think it it could be you know really change how farmers manage uh their crop um i think um you know in terms of yield we had short stature corn that was yielding 280 to 290 uh i think that was pretty eye-opening to me because i thought well it's you know it's a shorter crop you know maybe you know a little more compact maybe it doesn't quite have the it but we did turn out it does have the leaf area and does have the biomass as is the bigger crop but you think uh, 
at first I was like, I don't know if, how well that's going to yield um, in comparison to, to the taller crops and, and the conventional, you know, typical hybrids that we plant. But, you know, then we started harvesting, you know, 280, 290. Um, I do think the we'd have to iron out the populations. I think something with short corn is that you probably need to push your populations to get that yield in comparison to, to some of the conventional hybrids that we typically plant. Um, but just seeing that level of yield off of these is, is really eye-opening. And I think it's, you know, it allows a lot more access, a lot more in-season access. You know, you think about the farmers that rely on helicopters and planes and they don't have the access to high clearance equipment. Um, it just gives them easier access. They can, you know, get a lot of their, their sprayer that they have in their shed right now. They can get that across a lot more acres. Um, you know, standability from that crop, you know, think about wind resistance and, and stuff like that. Um, still a lot uh, for us to learn and, and try and understand. I think there's challenges with it too. Ear height is probably the biggest challenge and something mm -hmm. that we monitor very closely because of harvestability. Um, so we, you know, on the other side, you know, we've seen really impressive yields, but we've also seen certain hybrids of short stature hybrids and certain management conditions where that ear does get too low and we just couldn't harvest it and we we're losing 20, 30 bushel um, at that point in time because we we're either missing ears or getting more butt shelling and, and stuff like that. So uh, there's a lot to learn, but I think it's something that is, is coming, you know, and, and it's going to start, you know, I think Bayer's first rollout is, is next year and primarily in Indiana, Iowa and in Illinois and, and Corteva is, is coming in the next couple of years. So um, it's something that these seed companies are, are pursuing very heavily. Um, it's something that we are probably going to be expanding upon in our research uh, next year. Um, and it's also something I think farmers are, are very intrigued with. They're very interested in it. Um, but there's still a lot, lot to learn with it too. But it was pretty eye-opening just seeing some of those yields um, and how that crop could, you know, we planted in 20-inch rows up to 50,000 um, and, and it tolerated it well. And actually, yeah, I think in that trial, that seeding rate trial, we probably could have went higher in that crop. May have still mm -hmm. uh, been able to yield. Now you think about what are seed costs and profitability and all that. That's the next question. But but seeing a crop being able to tolerate um, that and and we've joked with with Sean. I think in the next fifteen years, I could see corn and beans being planted in the same way in the same population. Sixty thousand seed population for both crops. Sixty <laughs> k and be twenty done. intros. Yep, in, in be both. done. Um, but it's you know it's it's new. Um, it's, it's something different. Um, it's pretty eye opening to me this year, just how well some of those hybrids could yield and how well they could perform. Um, but still a lot to learn and there, there's challenges with it, especially on the harvestability. Well, I'll, I'll say, you know, just from a selfish standpoint and people know I'm not a farmer. I'm just a guy who talks into a microphone about farming. Uh, there, there's a field, right? Like I'm coming, coming down the road, going to my house when I'm coming home from here and I can't see around the curve because all that corn's there. I much prefer mm -hmm. years that uh, soybeans are up there because I can actually see what's going on. Oh, I prefer the soybean years too. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's got to be safer too. Mm -hmm. I mean, from, sure. from that standpoint. So yep. I think a uh, number of benefits if, if that can all get squared away and, and worked out. That should yeah. be uh, interesting to continue to follow. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat, brought to you by your Indiana corn and soybean checkoff organizations. Visit yourcheckoff.org. What else here, guys, as we really wrap up harvest? Anything else, Sean, that jumps out at you that maybe you learned this year and, and 
maybe folks need to be keeping in mind here for next year? Yeah, so yesterday I was at our CCA board meeting, the certified crop advisors, and a lot of crop advisors across the state were talking about, you know, how the season wrap up and how's it looking right now. And a common theme in that conversation was, uh, again, the surprising topic that we've already talked about, yields and everything else, but the number of cover crops. Like everyone across the room, across the spectrum of the state in the Midwest was saying, there's a lot of cover crops that went out this year. And so it's interesting to me to hear that because mm -hmm. we kind of felt like it's been stagnant uh, or at least, you know, hasn't gone up or down within Indiana. And, and for the crop professionals that deal with this year in and year out, feels like it's a higher side. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see what the numbers are on it. Mm -hmm. um, another lesson learned, I finally got into having a project on it this year. I've wanted to do it for a number of years in that, you know, the, the dry conditions early on one trial here, we got hit. I mean, the soybean yields were six, seven bushels less um, because of, I, I think it's due to immobilization due of sulfur and, and a little bit of nitrogen. But the, the beauty of it was the study worked out, again, the way we planned. You, you hope it always works out. You don't want to do something for not. But we recovered. So we were able to recover from that, that setback and yield the same level as no cover and have, a, again, it's a sizable, that was a, another study that was a 20 bushel response. We went from, you know, mid 50s to mid 70s on that trial. And so with all the cover crops that are being planted, been planted, and with the weather we've got, there's still some opportunities to continue, probably CRI mainly, to get some more planted and to look at how we're gonna manage that next year to optimize what's your, you know, whether it's soil erosion control, water, uh, wind or you think about you want to build organic matter okay that takes time to do that but then the one cropping season okay is there a potential immobilization is there some issues that we can still overcome with management i know dan's had a history of dealing with the uh, increases starter nitrogen rate on the corn so i think that's some lessons we've learned as we go into what next crop's going to look like yeah i think yeah from our perspective too on the corn side is you know we've been learning a lot about cover crops the last couple of years um i think you know we're gonna you know really get some good results off of some of our cover crop trials this past year um you know i think we're really kind of starting to hone in on the nitrogen management of corn i don't think it's a, a perfect um you know response and an improvement to closing that yield gap i don't think i'm gonna interrupt eric i don't think the corn agronomists know what they're doing with nitrogen all right so here's my thing how many decades have they been studying nitrogen management in corn how many decades it's gonna dan though you i said corn agronomist no i i no i i'm obviously I'm, not here to job so security right. job security no but i i again i i yeah. give him a hard time and i give all you guys a hard time but no that is such a fickle beast with weather and oh, you yeah. bring in CRI you bring in any cover crop or yep. uh, tillage and all that so anyway go ahead. yeah I think nitrogen is such a pain and or bane of my existence so probably <laughs> something I work on until I'm 80 um, and still won't figure it out sure. you know, when, when I'm 80 as long as you're getting state averages over 200 bushels uh, I think you'll be okay <laughs> yeah. um, but I think you know we've we've started to, to figure some things out in terms of nitrogen management and corn I, I you know something like CRI you know CRI we've had 
many conversations, you know, Sierra Rye a lot of times is really the only cover crop that really performs in a lot of areas. Um, but it has its challenges both from nitrogen and sulfur. Um, I think some of the starter work, um, both myself and, and Shalimar Armstrong have done, we've done a lot of work on nitrogen timing. And I think we figured some things out there, nitrogen rates. Um, we had a, a fair amount of work we've done in the last couple of years. Um, we expanded it more this year is looking at some planter aspects. And I think that's a big, big thing that we found both from downforce side and active downforce, but also some of the, actually some of our closing wheel work uh, was a little bit more surprising to us in Southern Indiana um, this year where we actually saw some improvements just when some of that updated planter technology um, that's out there just from getting that crop established into some of that residue. Um, so it's it's a working progress. Um, it's something we're always trying to understand, but there's, there's starting to be pieces um, that we can kind of point to if we, we do this, this, and this, hey, we can at least kind of help ensure that crop get established, maybe reduce some of the, you know, potentially challenges, especially from the fertility side with a, with a cover crop. All right, here it comes. You ready for this? Oh boy, I, here we go. 2024 a, yield estimate, go. <laughs> I, I, am a, I am a journalist through and through. This is the no spin zone. Uh, no softballs being lobbed here. Folks are curious. It's been a, a big topic of conversation. And Sean mentioned it earlier, uh, talking about research around biologicals. What are we seeing because they're they're everywhere now everybody's Mm -hmm. got some somewhere that they're you know saying can improve x percent like what are we seeing with biologicals and you don't need to call them out by name you know specifically (laughs) but what what are we seeing in this let's start off with there's over 1200 companies in this space 1,200 companies that are in this space of biologicals of some level, whether it's biostimulants, whether it's marine extracts, and then what effects they have or the potential effects. And so there's a lot of hope and promise in, in these. And so uh, I've looked at them. Biologicals have been around in soybeans longer than any crop, right? If you really think about it, Brady rhizobium, uh, that's been since the 1920s. So, I mean, there are cases that we get the benefit, and certainly soybeans you know, need it. The newer biologicals, if you will, that is obviously the question of the day. And, you know, we've done it for two years now at the national level uh, on soybeans. We've had a biological seed treatment study over 49 locations across the U.S. last year. We've got nearly 60 locations this year. Last year in the 22 set, um, we had four out of the 49 that had some level of a response. And that wasn't consistent in which ones, right? And so within those... We're looking. We're looking for biologicals. We're looking for those because obviously there's plenty out there and there's there's documentation in terms of, and I'll agree with it, okay, some have better improvement in the plant's root development or you think about phosphorus activity. And so, I mean, there are the, the points of what they do. It's just a matter of how repeatable across the landscape is it. And so that's where I want to go with on the biological is, okay, what is the purpose of that biological? Understand what the benefits are. If it's for phosphorus availability, whether it's to mineralize the phosphorus or to bring in organic phosphorus, so the phosphatase types, this is an example. All right, let's go to the fields that have lower phosphorus or have some issues, or if it's in something that helps with our muscular mycorrhizal. And so that's just, you know, we've known about that for, you know, decades as well, and they extend the root systems and water and nutrient supply. So to understand these biologicals in terms of what they're really trying to do, I think, and then place them. As it stands right now on the soybean side, 
I haven't be, besides Brady Rhizobium, I haven't seen anything that's like, yep, that's the one that's going to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, this year, I brought out 15 new biologicals. Last last winter, I asked the farmers, crop professionals, tell us which ones you want us to look at. And we're concentrating on nutrient-related ones, so whether it's the plant or the soil or the organic matter. And so we've got 15 that we've looked at, and there might have been one, one that maybe has seen something, but it wasn't enough for me to say, yep, there's something going on there. So we're still looking. I don't see a, a silver bullet as of yet, but we're going to continue looking. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Yeah, is that where you're going to leave it? <laughs> yeah. um, this, you know, this is my uh, kind of. I've worked in with biologicals in the past when I was in grad school and stuff, but this was kind of my first year here at Purdue to to start diving into those. Uh, we have a project uh, with through Indiana Corn that's really going to expand upon it next year. Um, but you know, on the corn space, you know, it's no secret the big ones are the the nitrogen, you know, fi yep. fixing ones, right? Um, if we can apply this biological, can we save X amount of nitrogen? And, and that's the big topic. That was the one, you know, kind of where this project came about for me is, is I had so many farmers ask me about it because there's, there's so much marketing going on. There's so a lot of claims out there. Um, but you know, just to start, and when you look at biologicals, they're so challenging. Um, Sean mentioned, you know, inconsistencies and in, in finding a silver bullet um, from a corn perspective. And, and I've told folks with my experience, you know, I'm going to keep looking at them. I'm going to keep trying, but I just, from my, what I've worked on, I've never seen one perform. Um, I've never seen one, you know, jump out at me mm -hmm. and say, oh, okay, look, there, there might be something here. Um, it's just time and time again, you know, we've, we had a bunch of trials this year where we applied biologicals across multiple nitrogen rates and multiple locations and, and multiple application methods everywhere from the seed applied to the starter fertilizer to all the way to foliar applications of these biologicals. Um, and we just, I think they're very you know, niche and where they maybe can perform in, in certain environments and certain locations. Um, you know, you think about the soils in Indiana and agricultural soils are very biologically active. There's already so many, um, you know, active soil biology that is there already. Um, and, and what's difficult is, is, and what's challenging and maybe someday we could get there. And I think, you know, talking with soil microbiologists, I think there is some potential there. Um, but you think about introducing one organism from this jug into this highly biologically active environment. Um, one, we don't know how they interact a lot of times. Two, we don't know. I mean, I've talked to microbiologists and they say sometimes that organism shows up and it is immediately killed by what is already there. Um, and that's where there's just so much inconsistencies with it. Um, there's been a lot of reports on, you know, university research, and it's very similar to the soybean side where there may be one or two out of maybe 70 um, sites where we, we see a response. Um, all of our trials this year, we didn't see a response um, from these biologists. We'll keep looking at them, right? This is just one year. We're going to expand the trial, do it across more environments, more areas, and, and keep looking at them. Um, but, you know, my... I always put kind of caution to the wind and with farmers and, and, and test it, right? And maybe leave some strips or, or do your own research on your own farm with some of these practices. Um, you know, some of them are, are claiming to save a lot of nitrogen, but, you know, how is that going to impact when, when the price of nitrogen does come down, right? I think some of them did capitalize on that, that market where the nitrogen prices did really skyrocket um, as well. Because some of these, you know, biologicals aren't, aren't very cheap um, as well. So there's, there's aspect, that aspect of it too. There's just 
so much uh, we don't know. Uh, there's so much we need to keep learning and testing and trying to understand. Um, and that's something that we're going to try and do. But this year, I back to like Sean's point, there's nothing that just jumps out to me and says, oh, I think there's something here. It's just, it's always like, oh man, we're just, we're not seeing much. Kind of seems like, you know, to your point of how many companies are involved in this space <laughs> and how many biologicals are yep. there, kind of seems like there aren't enough of you. Uh, there, there, there aren't enough extension agronomists out there to be able right. to actually go and, and and do all of these trials to figure it out. So it really does go back to doing it on the farm, having your own little R&D space on the yep. farm to figure out if this stuff's going to work. Well, and, and I'll go back. I mean, it's easy for us to say, oh, scoff or whatever, because we're – I want to be that that way so then we help give recommendations for the mm -hmm. growers so they don't lose out on their money, their profit. But that doesn't mean that we scoff in a way that we don't test it, right? I mean, Dan and I want to have solutions. We want to have, you know, things that are going to provide value, going to provide profit, provide production. And so in one way, it's easy to say, oh, how can the bug in the jug give me this? But then I go back to, well, we've had bugs in the jug. It wasn't the jug at the time. It was, mm -hmm. you know, bugs in the soil. Uh, so bradyrhizobium on the soybean side, that, I mean, if you don't have it, you are lost. I think the big difference on those is that's a symbiotic relationship, right? There's a benefit to the microorganism, the microbe, as well as the, the plant. And so whenever we have that combination, I think that's a little bit easier to say, yeah, that's going to get it. It's these asymbiotic you know, those kind of like, okay, there might be an every now and then kind of situation mm -hmm. and, and the consistency, I hope we find it, but right now it's hard to see. Well, guys, what else? What else do we need to talk about here? I know that, uh, again, harvest is wrapping up. Uh, Dan, I'm, I'm going to give you the opportunity here to, to tell folks, uh, you know, if you've had that, uh, that anhydrous out there this fall, <laughs> it, just just don't right isn't that your message at this point just 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 stop just don't yeah that's uh, and if you're listening to this podcast and you're you're running around putting the anhydrous out stop don't right? i i've seen the tanks out um you know and it's it's you know i've seen the weather and you know that's fall anhydrous is something we don't recommend right um i would never tell a farmer hey you need to do fall anhydrous um that's something we don't recommend you know jim camarado has been here for years always says we don't recommend fall anhydrous now in certain cases right if you're above the indianapolis line and if you're gonna do it you know make sure you definitely make sure you have a nitrogen stabilizer in there something like nitropyrin and nserve make sure that soil temperature is at a certain level where it's you know 50 degrees and decreasing not it was 50 degrees and then three days later it's 70 degrees um it's just uh it's you're losing that nitrogen right that's you think about nitrogen management in in corn it's all about a lot of times trying to reduce the risk of that nitrogen or having that exposure of that nitrogen to environmental conditions. You put it on in the fall, it's got a long, now nit you know, anhydrous is the most stable form of nitrogen. You can have an inhibitor, you can have those cold soil temperatures, but then you get it in the spring too. You know, how long are we delayed in the spring? What are the weather conditions in the spring? How much are we losing at that point in time? Um, it's just in terms of nitrogen, nitrogen is a very high variable cost for farmers. It's also a very high environmental detriment in a lot of areas. It's something that's watched very closely. Um, it's something that, you know, we just have to be careful with. 
Um, I don't like fall anhydrous. Um, I know why folks do it, um, but it's it's something to be cautious of because whether like today, you know, or even last week, I've seen the tanks out there and it was 75 degrees out there. Um, so how much are you losing? I mean, it's coming out of your your checkbook, right? Um, you're you're losing money. Um, you could have you know issues on that. Um, it's something we always warn farmers of. I hope it never happens, but you think it, I've been in other states that deal with this with water quality issues and, and nitrogen is the one they point their finger at a lot of times. And if we're not careful with it, there could be, I, I would say, rather have farmers manage their nitrogen voluntarily instead of, you know, I've been in Florida, I'm, I'm going to Maryland next week, right? They, they have a lot of challenges in those states and, and they have to meet certain guidelines and follow certain rules um, that nec- not necessarily we have to do in the, in the I states, but that doesn't mean it won't come in the next 10 to 15 years. So practices like that, right? Um, I know, understand why people do it. If you're going to do it, there's certain guidelines that we do want you to follow. We're never going to recommend fall anhydrous, um, but it's something to be cautious of if you are going to do it. I would much rather have you move your nitrogen to in season um, and manage it that way and be very cautious on how you manage your nitrogen um, and don't just apply it because the soil temperature is this and then it jumps up to 80 degrees and then you know how much we're losing. Um, so yeah, that's a very good point uh, for this time of year. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Dan, go ahead and step down. Sean, would you please take his soapbox and, and move that out of the way there? And <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. And then if head of soybeans, do not do fall anhydrous. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Uh, anything from your end here, Sean, as we start really kind of preparing, doing some field work for next year? Yeah, I think the big thing is uh, learn what we have on the varieties that are out there. Let's, you know, start with the base, the, the foundational things, right? Uh, exceptional yields, you know, kind of understand why we got there. So, I mean, there's certainly planting dates part of that. And you got some other fertility management I, I've hit on, but I mean, the, the genetics are there. So let's go back and say, are the genetics where I want? Uh, think about herbicide trait packages and weeds that are where escapes or not, or you've had issues of the past. So, you know, maybe this year you didn't have that problem, but they've had them in years past so let's make sure that we're setting the stage for varieties that can help you have the disease or excuse me the herbicide packages to address that so that's where I'd like to start and then what lessons did you learn and can you uh, you know duplicate those in the coming year that's going to do it for this edition of the Purdue Crop Chat. If you uh, did take uh, Dan's advice and just stop while you were out there running the fall anhydrous, you, you might want to, I don't know, get out, walk around, do something. Um, don't just stay there, you know. Uh, I have a pretty good feeling if they were going at that point in time, they probably they were probably just going to probably had some choice words, and they probably hit the hit the pause button, stop them. <laughs> That happens. Yeah. Hey, uh, guys, thanks a lot for, for getting together to do this. I know uh, Harvest has been busy for everyone, and uh, good luck, Dan, in, in mm-hmm. wrapping that up here over the course of the next uh, week or so. We'll we'll get back together again here soon. We'll, we'll kind of put a bow on the, on the season, I think, and just talk about what we saw. And, uh, look forward to doing that again here soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. This has been Purdue Crop Chat, a regular series featuring Purdue Extension's Dr. Dan Quinn and Dr. Sean Castile, made possible by the Indiana Corn and Soybean Checkoffs, the Indiana Corn Marketing Council, and the Indiana Soybean Alliance. The checkoffs are pleased to help bring you agronomy insights from Purdue Extension. Opinions on the podcast are those of the host and guests and not those of the sponsor. Purdue Crop Chat is a service of Purdue. Purdue University Extension and who's your ag today? Timely, relevant, credible. <laughs>